Four times in the first 10 chapters of Mark, Jesus performs miracles. Then he tells the recipients of those miracles, mums the word. Don't talk about it. In chapter 1, verse 44, when he cleanses a leper. In chapter 5, verse 43, to the parents of the girl he raised from the dead. In chapter 7, verse 36, to a deaf and dumb man who was gloriously yet strangely healed. And in chapter 8, verse 26, to a blind man whose sight he had restored. Apparently, his miracles created a mob. And Jesus knew that the will of the masses wasn't necessarily God's priority. And so to keep the crowds at bay, he tried to avoid needless publicity until we get to Mark chapter 11. For here Mark records the only public demonstration Jesus ever orchestrated. Here he plays to the crowd and for a very specific reason. Verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem, atop just over to the east side of the Mount of Olives. Bethphage is a little closer to Jerusalem. For nine months, Jesus and his men have been zigzagging their way from Galilee to Jerusalem. There were actually 35 different stops on their journey south. At the end of chapter 10, they leave Jericho which, by the way, is 846 feet below sea level. They climb 3,320 feet into the Judean mountains and to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus times his arrival in Jerusalem perfectly. He enters the city on the Sunday before Passover. Now, on Thursday of Passover week, the day of Passover, Jewish families would sacrifice a lamb for their sins. The Sunday prior, which was this day, you could call it Selection Sunday, the family would go and pick out the lamb that they would sacrifice on Thursday. And the plight of this sacrificial lamb paralleled the plight of Jesus. For on Thursday of this coming week, Jesus will endure a Roman scourging, then a crucifixion. In the high priest's own words, Jesus will die for the nation. The Messiah, King of Israel, will become its sacrifice. Yet here, four days earlier, on Selection Sunday, Jesus is chosen by the people. The Jews gather on the Mount of Olives to hail Jesus as their Messiah. They think they're choosing him to be their Savior. In reality, they were selecting him as their Passover lamb. Now, Jesus had three friends who lived in Bethany. You remember them. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I would imagine he stayed at their house Saturday night But early Sunday, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. Now, these disciples were to retrieve an untamed donkey. It's interesting, both the timing of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his transportation now were prophesied years in advance. Zechariah 9, verse 9, foretold that Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel riding on a donkey. You remember when Gentile kings entered a city, they rode on the back of a stallion, a white steed. But a donkey was a beast of burden, a pack animal, a servant. And in choosing a donkey, Jesus was stressing his humility. Jesus came to serve. Now, Jesus tells his disciples to fetch the donkey. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Notice this phrase, the Lord has need of it. Here's an oxymoron. You know, oxymorons. For example, pretty ugly, that's an oxymoron. Tight slacks, government organization, that's one of my favorites. On the surface, the statement sounds contradictory. And here, Jesus is Lord of heaven. Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus needs nothing. Jesus could have ridden on the back of an angel. He could have flown through the air down the Mount of Olives. Yet Jesus 
has need of a donkey. Here is the mystery of the incarnation. The unlimited God limited himself. The God who holds the heavens in his hands was held in a young mother's arms. The God who needs nada had need of a donkey. You know, at Jesus' birth, he was laid in a borrowed manger. On the shores of Galilee, he preached from a borrowed boat. In Jerusalem, he'll later be buried in a borrowed tomb. Here he rides on a borrowed donkey. Jesus didn't own a bassinet or a boat or a burial plot or a burrow. He borrowed one from us. And today, Jesus doesn't own a car to pick up a friend and bring him to church. He doesn't own a home where you can invite your neighbors over and share with them the gospel. He doesn't own a pan that he can use to make a dinner for someone in need. Now today, our Lord Jesus is still borrowing stuff from us to accomplish his purposes. I hope if Jesus wants to borrow your car or your money or your lawnmower or an instrument or your house or your voice, you'll let him. I hope none of us will get stingy with Jesus. Is there something in your life today that the Holy Spirit has earmarked? He whispers, the Lord has need of it. If so, loose it and bring it to Jesus. And so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them as Jesus, just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Notice they follow Jesus' instructions, and guess what? He works out the details. He opens the doors. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Now, when a woman discovers she's pregnant, her next thought is, when is this baby going to get born? What's the due date? And so she starts calculating the due date. And yet statistics say only 30% of babies are actually born on the predicted day. Due date setting is not an exact science. In fact, even the doctors hedged themselves two weeks either way. Yet when it came to his son, God was very precise in predicting the due date. In the Old Testament, he pinpointed the exact day Messiah would appear to the nation Israel. Understand, Israel at the time of Jesus was pregnant with promise. The Old Testament had predicted the coming of a king, and not just any king. This king would rule the world forever and ever. You see, the coronation of every Hebrew king was done by the anointing of oil. A ram's horn of olive oil was poured over the head of the king. This is why the promised deliverer, the special deliverer, was called the anointed one, or in the Hebrew, Messiah. God repeated this promise to Jacob and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but to Daniel, God pinpointed the due date. 500 years before Jesus was born, God told the prophet Daniel of a period of 483 years. Daniel 9 verse 25 defines its parameters from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There would be a period of 483 years or 173,880 days. History tells us that the Persian king Artaxerxes issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March the 14th, 445 B.C. If you got out your calendar and did all the nuances and calculated 173,880 days later, you would come to the date of April the 6th, 32 AD, this was the day we're reading about in Mark chapter 11, when Messiah would appear to the nation. Now, the gestation period for human beings is nine months, give or take. But for the moms that I've talked to, they tell me, that for a pregnant lady, those nine months seem like a lifetime. But ladies, just be glad you're not a rhinoceros. Did you know an expectant rhino stays pregnant for 15 months? Just be glad you're not an elephant. 
For if you were an Asian elephant, ladies, you'd carry your baby two years. You wouldn't just need a baby book to collect your memories and your mementos. You'd need a trunk. A trunk. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Israel was pregnant with promise for 483 years. And God determined the due date to the very day. Now there's a road that leads from the top of the Mount of Olives down its steep slope. It crosses the valley below and it goes through the gates onto the Temple Mount. On that Sunday before Passover, this road was lined with throngs of people. From all over Israel, the masses had flocked to Jerusalem for the Passover. One historian estimates that the city's population swelled to two and a half million during the days of the feast. And there is no doubt that many of these people came out to greet Jesus. For months, Jesus had been the talk of the town. People had seen his miracles, especially the recent raising of Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he had been dead for four days. Rigor mortis had set in. And now he was alive thanks to Jesus. The crowds lined the road that day to cheer Jesus, cheer Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 7. Well, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. They made a makeshift saddle. And Jesus sat on it. And notice the burrow's compliance. Remember, this was a, a donkey that had never been broken. Mules are notorious for their stubbornness. And yet here, this animal is submissive to Jesus. This untamed, unbroken donkey melts under the master. He just completely yields. You know, I know people who are more like this donkey than this donkey. Jesus wants to climb aboard your life. Why is it you buck and you kick and you resist? We need to be like this donkey and let the Lord lead us. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Here's the Jewish equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. It's a royal welcome. You know, in ancient times when a victorious general returned from battle, people would line the streets to welcome and to honor the general. And he would lead a procession of his defeated foes and of his victorious soldiers. Now, in your mind, imagine, here comes Jesus. And he too is leading a procession. There's blind Bartimaeus. Now he sees. And there's Lazarus. And there's that man, that lame man who's now walking. And that forgiven prostitute. Imagine the crowd coming down the Mount of Olives with Jesus. All trophies of his grace. What a colossal moment this was. This road had started in the halls of heaven. It ran through Bethlehem, and then Egypt, and then Nazareth, and Sidon, the land of the Phoenicians, and then back to Capernaum, and even to Samaria. Now it tops the hill and enters the stretch run into the city of Jerusalem. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means save now. It's from a psalm, Psalm 118. Their cry for salvation continues in verse 10. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus was the king the Jews were promised. And he will deliver them from all their enemies, including Rome. But what they didn't understand was his timing. See, they wanted political deliverance now. That's why they said, save now. But that wasn't his intention. Jesus came the first time to save them spiritually from their sin. He'll come again to deliver them politically and save them from Rome. And you see, this is our problem so often. When difficulties arise and when trouble strikes, we want Jesus to save us right now. Despite the fact that there may be a reason for the situation we want to escape, despite the fact that there may be a lesson to be learned or some endurance to be gained, Jesus will save us, but he doesn't always rush in right now. It's tragic, but by week's end, the crowd will be so disappointed that Jesus didn't save them right then, that he didn't abide by their timetable and their political aspirations 
that the same voices that yelled Hosanna on Sunday will shout crucify him, crucify him on Thursday. Verse 11, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What Jesus saw in the temple now angered him. We're going to read about it later. And he's planning to return to the temple the next day and do a little spring cleaning. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Apparently he'd skipped breakfast that morning and his stomach started to rumble. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Now remember between Bethany and Jerusalem was a village called Bethphage, which means house of figs. And it lived up to its name. This hillside was full of fig trees. Fig trees in Israel can grow up to 25 feet high. They produce broad leaves and delicious fruit. The fig was a staple of the Jewish diet. The average Jew had four major food groups. Bread, grapes, fish, and figs. Figs were often picked and just eaten fresh. They could get dried out and eaten. Or they could get processed in sugar and turned into little cakes called Fig Newtons. Well, maybe that's a modern invention. But Jesus was hungry for some figs. The story continues, verse 13. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, most fruit trees sprout leaves first, then fruit. But a fig tree is just the opposite. Fruit appears before the leaves. So when Jesus saw that this tree had leaves but no figs, he knew that it was unhealthy. He cursed its future. Now understand, in Jewish literature, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. And what Jesus does here with the fig tree was a metaphor for the nation. He saw Israel as a fruitless fig tree. Oh, Israel was full of foliage and leaves. The Jews were uber-religious. But there was no real spiritual fruit underneath all of those works and ceremonies and traditions and so forth. This parable helps us understand the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. Jesus came to Israel looking for fruit, and all he found was religious leaves. As a result, spiritually speaking, Israel was withered and barren. And the fig tree, after the fig tree incident, we're told, then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Understand the priest had turned the temple worship into a revenue stream. When you bought a, brought a sacrifice to the temple, it had to be inspected. It was so easy for the priest to find a little blemish in your sacrifice. All of a sudden, you're without a sacrifice. And you have to buy one of the doves from the temple flock. They had a stock of doves on hand. Of course, you better know they charged you an exorbitant price. Or your temple tax. Everyone paid a temple tax. But it couldn't be paid with Roman coins since they carried the emperor's image. They had to be exchanged for kosher coins, Jewish coins. But at a hefty exchange rate, you can bet. It was a scam just to make a buck off God. Both the sacrifices and the money changers. Now remember, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had done the same thing. He had cleansed the temple. The first time, though, he took a whip. He drove them out with a whip. Here he uses his bare knuckles. Imagine tables turning, money flying, merchandise is ruined, merchants are running for cover. Jesus is a one-man wrecking crew. Realize, there's a lot of things we can draw from this, but realize this. Jesus was no wimp. He got angry for the right reasons. Here he cleanses the temple in a premeditated act of aggression. He was zealous for God. 
Jesus ran off the folks who were misrepresenting him. And you know, I'm sure that there are some greedy ministries today where if Jesus visited, the first thing he'd do would be to clean house. Verse 17, then Jesus taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, understand, Jesus was infuriated, not just for what these priests were doing, but where they were doing it. They had probably set up in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. This was the one place in the temple where non-Jews could go to learn about God. And instead of God being glorified there, he was being horribly misrepresented. This angered Jesus that the non-Jews were unable to learn about God. And this is why Jesus calls the temple a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. And notice Jesus refers to the Jewish temple as my house. Oh, my. I'm sure that statement made the hair stand up on the back of Jewish necks. Jesus walks into God's house and calls it my house. Jesus was claiming to be God, no doubt about it. That's certainly how his enemies reacted. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. In the New Testament, the church is called the temple. This is why we want all of our gatherings to be a house of prayer. We always want the agenda to be spiritual when we gather. Well, when evening had come, Jesus went out of the city. He left Jerusalem, went back to Bethany. But in the morning, as they passed by, they saw that fig tree dried up by the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. When a tree ceases bearing fruit, we know that the issue is at the root. The roots are no longer getting the proper water and nutrients. And this is why a Christian or a nation dries up and stops producing fruit. He or it is no longer sinking their roots into God. They're no longer drawing refreshment and nutrients from God. And in the next few verses, Jesus gives us four steps to prevent our own spiritual withering. First, put your faith in God. Second, verbalize your faith. Third, communicate to God through prayer. And fourth, forgive your brother. Verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Don't put your faith in your own skill and ability. Don't put your faith in your good works or in your religious deeds or even put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in God and in his grace. Trust him. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Note it's not whoever thinks about this mountain or whoever wishes it was removed. It's whoever says to this mountain, faith needs to be spoken. It's not enough to have faith. We need to verbalize our faith. Hey, when you speak your faith, you go on record. I think at times we don't verbalize our faith because we're hedging our bets. If I don't say I'm trusting God, then if he doesn't come through, I'm off the hook. But when you verbalize your faith, you put yourself on the line, don't you? You get invested. Now your faith is a committed faith. That's the kind of faith God wants. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Real faith prays and stays in touch with God. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Faith in God always forgives others. See, there is no such thing as an unforgiving faith. Reminds me of the lady who didn't get invited to the church picnic. When the picnic planner realized her mistake, she extended a belated invitation. The lady replied, Oh, I forgive you, but I certainly can't come to your picnic. I've already asked the Lord for it to rain that day. 
A vindictive faith isn't a faith in God. Faith always forgives. Verse 27. Then they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? A few days earlier, Jesus had cleansed the temple. He had called it my house. He obviously was showing great authority. But here their question is a trap. And Jesus knows it. That's why he says, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, answer my question, then I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Come on now. Answer me. Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What a skillful reply. If you had a debate team, you would have wanted Jesus to occupy first chair. See, if they admitted John's authority was from God, Jesus would then say, hey, then why didn't you believe me since John said I was the Messiah? If they say that his authority came from men, they'll upset the masses because they all consider John to be a prophet from God. And this exchange begins Jesus' final showdown with the priestly establishment Round one goes to Jesus. In chapter 12, the confrontation continues with a story. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. And this was a common business practice those days in Israel. A landowner would build a vineyard. He would lease it out to others to work. Then the landowner and workers would split the profits. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating them and killing some. These people don't play nice. This is one of those moments when you had to have been there. For just a few feet, he's in the temple now, and just a few feet away stood the doors of the temple. They were about 100 feet tall. They were overlaid with gold, and around the doors were carved giant grapevines. The vine was a symbol of Israel too. In fact, even more so than the fig tree, the grapevine represented the nation Israel. Like a vineyard, God had planted Israel in the land. He had protected her with walls. He had assigned priests to grow spiritual fruit. But rather than serve the landowner, the Jewish leaders were out only for themselves. And when God sent prophets to warn them of their sin, they beat them and they stoned them and they shamefully treated them, even killing God's messengers. This all hit close to home. But Jesus continues, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, that is the beloved of the landowner, also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. All this was prophetic. Jesus claimed to be God's only son, and he knew what the Jews were about to do. He was here predicting his rejection. In his execution. Verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And history tells us this is exactly what happened. In 70 AD, after the Jews had crucified Jesus, the Romans besieged Jerusalem. They toppled the temple and in doing so, dismantled the institutions of Judaism. Hebrew culture crashed as the Christian church began to grow. In other words, God gave the vineyard to a new group of workers. Jesus continues, have you not read this scripture? And here he quotes Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus appeals not only to a psalm, but to a well-known Jewish tradition at the time. See, when Herod's temple was constructed, or as the story goes, the stones were quarried some distance from the temple. They were hauled in for placement. And when the first stone arrived, it didn't seem to fit. So the builders rolled it off the cliff. After all the stones had been shipped and the temple was nearing completion, the builders realized that they were one stone short. The capstone was missing. They'd made a horrible mistake. The capstone was the one that they had rejected earlier. Now the analogy and the scriptures are coming true. For the chief priest and builders of Judaism were now rejecting Jesus, the cornerstone of the Old Testament. Yet though Israel had cast Jesus aside, others would receive him. Jesus would become the foundation of the church. And he has. He is our cornerstone. He is now the cornerstone of a new and glorious temple made of living stones. You and I, his people. God transferred the care of the vineyard from Israel to his church. And did Jesus' parable make these Jewish priests happy? Verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on Jesus, not for prayer, by the way. They wanted to rough him up, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, Pharisees and Herodians, this is like ultra-Democrats and ultra-Republicans. This is two ends of the pendulum here. The Herodians were a political party that sided with King Herod. These men were seen as Roman collaborators. In contrast, the Pharisees were Jewish loyalists. These two groups couldn't have been farther apart. Normally, they hated each other. They were the day's left-wingers and right-wingers. But their mutual hatred of Jesus created strange bedfellows. For here we're told they came together to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, and you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. And did they really believe that? Nah. This was just flattery. They didn't honor Jesus. Like a piece of bread, they're just buttering him up before they stick in the knife. Verse 14, here they come. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now again, this was a carefully crafted trick question. For if he says pay taxes, they're going to accuse him of sympathizing with Rome. He's going to lose credibility among the people. They might even call him an idolater since Rome viewed their emperor as a god. Paying taxes to him could be viewed as tatamont to emperor worship. But if Jesus said, don't pay the taxes, then they could take him to the Romans for treason. The Roman governor would have little choice but to punish Jesus. Either way, the Jews thought they had him. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. A denarius was a small Roman coin, maybe the size of a dime. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. On one side of that denarius was the bust of the Caesar, along with the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of that denarius were the words Pontifus Maximus, which is Latin for high priest. 
Obviously, this coin was dedicated to the Roman emperor. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, in antiquity, coins were the property of the one whose image they bore. You look at that coin, there's Caesar. That coin belongs to Caesar. Jesus is saying, if this coin belongs to Caesar, then give it back to him. But give God what belongs to God. And what bears God's image? The answer is you and me. Genesis tells us that God made mankind in his own image and in his own likeness. Jesus is saying, oh, give your coins to Caesar, but give your life. To God, your whole life. I love what Kent Hughes writes about verse 17. He says this, The statement of our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Understand, with amazing brevity and conciseness, Jesus affirms both the validity, yet the limits of human government. God is supreme. But the government has a place. It can issue a tax if needed, but God expects our very lives. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. Now the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the conservatives, whereas the Sadducees were the liberals. The Sadducees denied the inspiration of Scripture, apart from the first five books of Moses. They denied angels, the afterlife, anything supernatural, even the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. And they asked Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now this was right out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. For in ancient Israel, a widow's prospects for remarriage were slim. Without a son, she had no one to take care of her in her old age. Thus it was the brother-in-law's duty to take her in. Now here's the Sadducees' question. It's a wild one. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. My first observation is, wow, this must have been a real basket case of a gal here. She kills off seven husbands. But I mean, this is a wild story. Sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer, if you ask me. You know, it reminds me of the girl who thought she could have 16 husbands. Did you hear about this girl? She thought she could have 16 husbands. She told her friend, well, the preacher said four better, four worse, four richer, four poor. Did you hear about the woman who had a dream in which the angel came to her and told her, said, prepare yourself for widowhood. Your husband is about to die a violent death. She replied, I have just one question. Will I be acquitted? Well, here's a woman who killed all seven husbands. Jesus ends the story. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Hey, I hope you realize that all heresies, all theological errors, rise out of either a denial of God's power or an ignorance of the Bible. One of the two. People deny the creation, the parting of the Red Sea, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, the second coming. Why? Because they deny God's power. They refute the Trinity or the blood atonement 
or salvation by grace through faith. Why? Because they're ignorant of the scriptures. All heresies spring from the denial of God's power or from the ignorance of God's word. Now, in verse 25, Jesus sheds a light on what happens to us, marriage-wise, in the afterlife. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, apparently, marriage is a temporary arrangement. I suppose if you've got a good marriage, this could be bad news for you. But if you've got a less than good marriage, this could be good news for you tonight. (laughs) Marriage on earth is temporary. Your marriage might be a marriage made in heaven, but it's intended only for earth. Earthly marriages exist for two primary reasons. First, marriage is an illustration of our relationship with Christ. And second, it's a means of procreation. Surely, in heaven, we don't need that illustration. We'll have the real thing. We'll we'll be married to Jesus. And there'll be no need for procreation. People say, well, what about intimacy? What about closeness? Surely, in heaven, we are going to be intimate and close to people. In fact, I think the most casual friendship in heaven will probably be more heartfelt than the deepest marriage on earth. But the only marriage in heaven will be to our master, Jesus. See, our love relationship with Jesus will be the dominant love story when we get to heaven. And it'll make human marriages unnecessary. When Jesus continues answering these Sadducees, he says, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now remember the Sadducees, they denied the resurrection of the dead. They also denied the inspiration of the Old Testament, except for the first five books of the law of Moses. Jesus could have gone anywhere in the Old Testament to prove the resurrection. But guess where he went? To the burning bush passage. Exodus chapter 3, in the law of Moses. He wants to reach these guys. Long after their bodies had decomposed, God said that he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And since he is only the God of living people, obviously Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still be alive. That's Jesus' logic. There is life after death, he's telling these Sadducees. You don't need to be sad, you see. There is an afterlife. There is life after death. Jesus solves the riddle, and he riddles them with the truth of resurrection. Verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the greatest commandment? And this was the hot theological topic of the day. You see, the scribes had broken down the law into 613 different commandments. There were 248 positive injunctions or do's, and there were 365 don'ts. There was one prohibition for every day of the year. The question, though, which of these 613 was the most important? Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and no Jew would have ever debated that answer. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Every synagogue service began with the reading of that passage. The most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, love him with all you got, with all your heart. Make him your supreme desire with all your soul. Make him the object of your affections with all your mind. Revolve your thoughts around him all day long with all your strength. Make the Lord the greatest pursuit and passion of your life. No Jew would have debated that this was the greatest commandment. But what was provocative here is what Jesus says next. For here he quotes Leviticus 19 verse 18. And the second is like it. 
is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, prior to this occasion, no rabbi had ever connected loving God with loving your brother. We kind of take that for granted, but they didn't. And this must have stung the conscience of the listening Jews, for they all claimed to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, but they were void of any love for their brother. And Jesus is saying, you don't have one without the other. Love for God and love for your brother go arm in arm. Later, John writes of this, 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Jesus now has silenced his inquisitors. The Jews matched wits with the Son of God and ended up the dim wit. That's what happened. The moral of the story, never debate the written word of God with the living word of God. (laughs) Now Jesus takes the offensive. Verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus here quotes Psalm 110. Again, it's a messianic psalm. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, unlike the Jews' trick questions, Jesus' question cut right to the heart of their objection of him as the Messiah. This is an important question. You see, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be David's son or his heir. But here in Psalm 110, David refers to Messiah as my Lord. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to my Lord. Now, how can this possibly be? You see, David was king, and the only person ranking higher than the king was God. How then can Messiah be God and man? God and son, human and divine. You see, the Jews were thinking of Messiah in strictly human terms. They didn't understand that the Old Testament also prophesied that Messiah would be God. You see, the Jews here have stopped questioning Jesus, but now Jesus tries to get them to question their own assumptions. Later, they're going to reject Jesus because he claims to be God. But here he's trying to get them to see That according to their own scriptures, their own scriptures required Messiah to be both man and God. Verse 37. And the common people heard him gladly. And the common people had no bias. They recognized his wisdom. But the Pharisees had been blinded by their own prejudices. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour a widow's houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. You know, it's interesting, for four years now, Jesus has preached mercy. Now, in the face of Judaism's rejection of their Messiah, he pronounces judgment on these hypocritical Jewish leaders. They dress in religious garb. They spout the religious lingo. They exalt themselves while stealing from poor widows. They just play around with religion. They make pretense with long prayers, playing, pretending to be religious, and in reality, not having a heart for God at all. You know, it always amazes me. Jesus reserved his harshest words, not for the prostitutes, not for the thieves and tax collectors, but for the religious leaders. Jesus had nothing but kindness and mercy for the sinner, but he condemns the hypocrite. Jesus was still in the temple 
when he makes one other observation. Verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. In the temple there were 13 offering boxes. Kind of like ours, but a different shape. They looked like inverted megaphones. Each of the boxes accumulated money that went for different purposes. But before the rich man would drop in his offering, he would make a pompous show of it. He would show off in doing so. Sort of reminds me of the fellow who stood up in church and he told the crowd, I want to be the first person to give a $1,000 anonymous contribution. That's, you get the idea. The rich and their sizable offerings were all about self-promotion, not glorifying God. Their giving was done in such a way to catch the eye of the bystander. But Jesus' focus was elsewhere. For then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant. The mite was a Jewish lepta. The word means to peel. It referred to something razor thin. This poor widow gave two paper-thin coins, not valuable at all, worth a fraction of a penny. Two tiny lepta were all this woman had, but what she had, she gave to God. Verse 43, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You know, I, I don't think, I think most people don't really give to God at all. We just tip God out of our surplus, out of our abundance. But this woman was one of the few people who knew the joy of truly giving to God. For she gave out of her poverty. See, we measure a gift by the amount that's given, but Jesus appraises a gift by the amount that's left over. We look at the portion. Jesus looks at the proportion. This widow gave just two mites, but God turned them into mighty mites. For her giving is an example to us today. 